Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our interactive and downloadable A to Z guides to body positive parenting. If you are determined to break the cycle of body insecurity and scrutiny for you and your family and to put body positive parenting into action, learn more and sign up at fullbloomproject.com slash join us. That's fullbloomproject.com slash join us. These free virtual guides will be free for the remainder of the Full Bloom Podcast Season 1, which wraps just five weeks from today on Friday, July 12th. So you still have some time to sign up for our mailing list and gain access to these guides for free. Each guide has a wealth of content carefully curated, including research and resources to help you put the fundamentals of body positive parenting into action, as well as practical daily tips to help you and your care providers help your children fully bloom. Again, those can be accessed by signing up at fullbloomproject.com slash join us. That's fullbloomproject.com slash join us. So Zoe, today we're talking about movement. Yes, this is a big one. I'm excited. There's a huge body of research out there that shows the benefits of physical activity for people of all ages. We know physical activity has a positive impact on a whole range of physical health measures, as well as emotional and psychological well-being. But like we've discussed around food and eating behavior and other episodes, there's also a ton of misinformation in our culture about what kind of movement counts as exercise, why you should exercise, and what's, quote, healthy or not. Today, we're trying to cut through all this diet culture messaging around exercise and movement and asking, how do I teach my child to just love movement? We have an expert joining us to answer these questions, and we think she's uniquely qualified. Yeah. Dr. Sasha Gorel has a PhD in clinical psychology and works on the University of California, San Francisco Eating Disorders Program team. Her current research is focused on investigating specific risk factors for eating disorders in adolescents, as well as exploration of unhealthy exercise behavior within the context of eating disorders. She's also done research investigating body image, athlete identity, exercise compulsivity in competitive runners, and conducting interventions among professional ballet dancers. And in addition to her academic work, Sasha had an 18-year career as a professional ballerina. Sasha, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Thanks very much for having me. So can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to focus on the prevention of eating disorders in athlete populations? 
Sure. Um, I guess just to start by um, saying that my whole life I was pretty active. I was an active kid. Um, but then I ended up having, for better or for worse, an 18-year career as a professional dancer. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of both Boston Ballet and American Ballet Theater, which are arguably some of the best ballet companies in the United States, maybe even the world. And in the context of that, I think I, I was always struck with how some of my colleagues um, did really well and thrived under the, the pressure of that environment, whereas others, not that they crumbled, but they seemed to struggle more, both with sort of the um, performance standards, but also, um, you know, the health of their bodies. And so after I... Um, retired from dancing and I went back to school, I sort of naturally started to gravitate towards psychology as a major in college. And then as I went to pursue my doctorate in clinical psychology, um, I think just I had the freedom um, in my graduate lab to choose where I wanted to start focusing my research. And um, it was just a really natural fit for me to, to try to sort of figure out for whom and why there were some risk factors there that um, made being an elite athlete um, more dangerous. So um, it's sort of a something where um, I didn't really plan to have this career, <laughs> but it kind of it kind of chose me as I as I started to to get more interested in in you know sort of the more empirical side of it. So and we're I'm particularly excited to speak with you. I know we both are, but because of your work with female athletes and also your own history of uh, being a professional ballet dancer. And, you know, I think a lot of parents listening may have kids that are, you know, for fun, getting excited about dance classes, getting excited about soccer and little league and things like that. And then, right, as kids get older, and I mean, I was a former dancer as well. And I know, you know, pretty young, you start kind of pairing off into people that are going to kind of take this seriously, take that professional track and people that are going to just keep doing it for fun. And that observation you made that like some folks in those groups just have increased risk and some don't. And so I think that you bring such a fantastic perspective as, you know, having been a child yourself and also being um, in that professional world. So though those listening may not be kind of in that professional dance world, you never know, like who has a kid that is sort of moving in that direction and sort of how to, how to protect our kids early on. So I'm just, I'm very excited you're here. Yeah. And I, um, I want to share with the listeners that, um, one of the reasons you are here is because, um, Zoe and I both attended the Academy for Eating Disorders conference this year, which was in March, 2019. And you presented on the research that you have done on adapting the body project, which we explored in our Thin Ideal episode for the female athlete. Um, and I'm really excited to have you share what you found um, in that research that you think might be applicable to parents? Sure, yeah, that project was actually my dissertation. Um, I was lucky enough to be given the permission to adapt the manual for use with female dancers. I learned a lot, a lot, a lot that I, I'm excited that the paper is um, about to be published, hopefully, um, to kind of give the gory details about it. But I think in terms of what's useful for parents to know, one of the things that struck me that actually is not going to be in the paper um, was that 
When I was having these sessions, I led groups with the dancers, and a lot of it was psychoeducation. It's a lot of information given to the dancers, um, both about nutrition, but about their bodies. And it was um, very eye-opening that when we started talking about amenorrhea, so the loss of a menstrual cycle, it's actually reflective of neuroendocrine dysfunction. And I think there's sort of a popular myth out there that, oh, if you're really active, um, it's expected that you lose your period. And that's actually not true. Um, and I think every single dancer that we, we went through that um, you know, conversation with, many of them had lost their period, or you know, it, if not then, it was throughout um, their teenage and young adult life. And they just assumed it was okay and normal because they were active and didn't realize it was actually reflective of not having adequate nutrition for the amount of exercise they were doing. Um, so I think they were, in some ways, they felt cheated and they said, why didn't my primary care ever tell me that it wasn't okay? Um, and so I think just having parents, um, if they do have young um, females that they're raising, whether it's soccer, whether it's dance, whether it's, you know, rugby, whatever they're doing, um, you know, if, if the child does, um, you know, start menstruating and then stops, that it's something that is actually reflective of maybe not getting enough nutrients for how much their, their activity level um, is taxing their body. So that was just kind of one of those things that I, I think is important for, uh, for parents to know to kind of, you know, make sure that they're um, not perpetuating the myth. Um, so important. I mean, just side note, our puberty episode is the most popular episode that we've released so far. And I think it's, you know, it's there's a reason why it's yeah. the most popular because it's complicated for girls to have their period. And I know plenty of people in my office who have used their movement practices and their eating practices to you know, not get their period. And um, I think that question that it sounds like the group participants were asking you, which was, why didn't anyone tell me about this or be concerned about this? I would love to know how you answered that question <laughs> when they asked you that. I would like to know as well. Well, I think um, my first response was sort of joining with them, validating it, because saying, you know, I never knew either my whole life um, as a dancer. I never, I never had a, um, a physician call my attention to that. And I think um, I'm not sure if either you or our listeners have heard of the female athlete triad. Um, it's a construct where there's obviously, because it's a triad, there's three parts to it. But one is um, not getting adequate nutrition. The other part is losing your menstrual cycle. And the third part is having bone density issues. Um, and the three things are very highly connected for females. Um, more recently, there's something called REDS, which is Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. That's the acronym. And that's the gender neutral version of it. So it applies to young boys too, going through puberty or even um, you know past puberty that there's this construct, um, you know, whether it's gendered or gender neutral, that really speaks to the relative energy deficiency, which is just sort of a fancy way of saying you're not eating enough for your level of activity. Um, and so I, I think, you know, in answer to those girls, I, or the women that, you know, I said, well, yeah, I never knew that it was because I wasn't eating enough either, and whether that's intentional or not, right? Because maybe you don't know how much activity you're actually doing and, and what your nutrient needs are. So 
yeah, it was something where I, I guess I didn't really have an answer other than saying, I know me too. <laughs> and you know, I, I actually literally just had a, like a flashback <laughs> to a moment in my own youth when I remember, I mean, I think I, I was a serious ballet dancer. I was probably about 12 or 13 and I hadn't started my period yet. And I was at like an orthopedist because I had an, an injury, like a dance related injury. And I'll never forget, he suggested putting me on the pill. I was 12 or 13 years old and probably not. I mean, I'm, I actually am just connecting that now. So I'm sharing that because I, I yeah, that, that's probably a common response. Nobody mentioned anything about increasing intake for me. I mean, I just anecdotally from all of my patients that I've seen, it is very, very common for that to happen yeah that if if someone is you know is not getting their period that that's one of I don't know how it is like an actual practice I don't want to want to be compassionate towards all the practitioners listening and out there I do think that our system is just not for some reason up to speed on this and I don't know if you have any commentary on that but it seems as if it's it's a real missing link for young girls or teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think honoring that there probably are a lot of primary care providers who actually do a really good job of making sure that, you know, they explain this in, a, in an educational way, both to um, the young girls, but also their parents. But I think you're right, just sort of making sure that we get it out there, that the, the myth of it being sort of related to activity level, sure it is, but that's more tangential, right? So just getting information out. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So let's talk about about you know movement practices in in young people and young athletes. And I'm wondering from from your perspective how you define and identify unhealthy exercise practices in young athletes. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's complicated. Um, there's probably a lot of different angles to look at it. I think if I had to highlight some. Um, aspects of it. I would say anything that's above and beyond what's expected within the context. Um, so, you know, for example, if you've already had um, during a, a sports season, you have a certain number of practices and games that you're expected to be at, um, something that would be above and beyond that that's initiated by the child that that just seems excessive, right? Or, or sort of motivated by something that um, is a little bit um, you know, beyond what would be sort of quote unquote healthy and whatever that is, you know, I think we all kind of have an idea when we see it, what doesn't look appropriate. Secondly, I would say when you're injured, right? I think it is really hard to sustain an injury and to sit out from the activity that you normally um, are participating in, but pushing through an injury when you shouldn't, um, that's something that um, does happen. And I think, you know, parents would be remiss if they didn't sort of, you know, encourage taking a break when you need to. And then finally, this is, again, probably even more more vague and <laughs> you know hard to put your finger on, but anything that, that isn't joyful or, or sort of sustains a sense of it's fun um, because I think, you know, it, whether it's something that you're pursuing as a, a physical career or doing just recreationally, I think, um, you know, anybody that's doing any kind of movement would say, I do it for some you know, some part because I enjoy it. So if it if it becomes really unfun, I think that there's something sort of unhealthy about that. So I have a question that uh, just came to me because I, I've had some parents um, ask this in, in co- contacting us, which is, 
I'm concerned about the way my child's coach is talking about bodies or performance or food. What do I do? How would you answer that? I'm struck with that myself. Um, I get I get questions about that too, um, and I think it speaks to sort of that top-down approach. Like there's only so much you can do in translating a healthy message to the child if they're getting messages from people that they respect or that they're, you know, sort of in an environment where they're, it's like a trickle-down. Unfortunately, there are some um, coaches or instructors or whatever you want to call them where they do sort of breed a toxic environment, you know, either by their words or by their actions. And I think to the best of a parent's ability to try to correct those messages, you know, either in the moment if they can, or even having the wherewithal to speak to the coach and say, you know, my child told me that you said X, Y, Z. You know, I'm wondering if you can explain your your reasoning for saying that, or, you know, it, it makes me uncomfortable that I have to kind of correct that message. Or, you know, I think encouraging parents to have a voice to directly address it. Yeah, it, it's tough. I, I think if I were a parent standing and watching my child in that environment, I would I would really, you know, sort of have to question whether I felt comfortable being assertive, but I would say go for it. I think a lot of parents tune in to this podcast because we do try to give solid evidence-based advice as much as we can find it and disseminate it for them. And one of the things that when I was sitting listening to you speak at AED in in the um, Sport and Exercise SIG presentation, there was... (laughs) this very important conversation about performance. And I think a lot of parents think their coach knows more than them about how to help their child perform athletically. And if they're saying this, how do I intervene in a way that, I don't know, it's it's a tricky thing. You're basically telling the coach, look, like you can't say that that's actually going to hurt performance, which is probably the most important thing a coach needs to hear or cares about is the performance piece. But where where does a parent get that information that they can share with the coach that's respectful but psychoeducational? Yeah, I'm not sure if we have the education for coaches out there yet. Um, I know that there's some work that's being done in Australia that directly sort of gives educational information to coaches Um, about sort of how to speak about bodies and speak about performance in a way that's not triggering or that doesn't increase risk. But I do think that there's a real gap in the literature in the sense of designing interventions for not only coaches, but also some parents, you know, if, if they're not sure of how to sort of approach feeling competitive or wanting their child to succeed. Um, I think that there are some things that you know, maybe parents should know not to say. So again, I think it's something where, unfortunately, I don't think that there is the science yet to sort of say how and and with what should the coaches be educated. Part of what we both love so much, and we imagine you do too, about family-based treatment, right, is the goal of empowering parents. And so one of the big things we talk about on this podcast is how parents can effectively buffer to the best of their ability, right? So you may not be able to change a coach or you know, effectively educate them. And we appreciate that it can be hard 
to even advocate by confronting, right? Con- confronting someone, especially someone that seems to have apparent authority, like a coach or a pediatrician. We've talked about that, like on our United Front episode, can be daunting. And but you know, being able to have those conversations with your kid, like you said, that top down, I think is is wonderful advice. And I think kind of feeds into this other question we want to ask you about. I guess I'll back up and say, you know, we really embrace the health at every size paradigm and we really think it's important not to assign virtue to movement and also be able to talk about how we know that movement is intuitive for most and is important for to health of bodies. Obviously, disabled bodies are not in a position to move in the same way as able bodies are. But if we're thinking about movement as something potentially joyful and useful and healthy, I'm going to say the word healthy, um, from your perspective, what is important for all parents to be aware of in their process of helping their kids find movement they love? Yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind um, with what you just said is the idea that our words can be so powerful in the way that we frame things. And so, you know, for a parent to say, um, we need to go walking because my pants don't fit <laughs> versus let's go take a walk. It's so sunny and beautiful outside. Right. And, and it's a totally different message. Same, same activity, same joined, you know, sort of mission, but, but the way in which the child interprets the second one is, is probably much healthier, right? If I I know using that word again, but so I, I think modeling best practices with, you know, sort of the motivation for exercise, it comes not only through our actions, um, but also through, through our words. And, you know, kids are like sponges. They, they hear everything and they interpret it. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that even if you don't personally have a good relationship with your body as a parent, making sure that you allow the child to formulate their own relationship with their body, you know, through in a more objective way. I think too, athletic skill, you know, building achievement in a, in a certain type of movement that they, you know, the child can be proud of themselves for something. It, it, that's generally a really good thing. Um, and I think if children find something that they excel at, it's generally something that they start to enjoy more. Right. And I think the, identity that's formed through being a certain type of athlete or or you know engaging in a certain type of activity is part of a certain development that I, I know for myself um, in eighth grade um, or even maybe before I had sort of identified as a ballerina like that was that was what I was gonna do and I mean I maybe it was a little precocious at the time but but I was very oriented towards it and it's something that for most kids is really healthy. But I think, let's say that the child gets injured or even in the off season, that over-identification doesn't allow for sort of sustained sense of identity or ego throughout that whole period. So I guess I'm sort of dancing around the idea that there's a, there's a balance there in, in identifying as something and being excited and proud but then also being okay with not doing it or potentially, quote, failing at it. Um, failure is normal. We all, we all make mistakes. We all, you know, sort of don't get on to that team that we tried out for. So I think just sort of being aware that um, supporting the child through all aspects of that, it's, it's probably exhausting at times. Um, but there's pros and cons to it. 
I I just want to respond because I think what you're bringing up is so important. And I think I'm particularly uh, responsive because I, it, it, it's, it's quite personal. I think for me, I, I notice in so much retrospect that what was so wonderful about being such a serious young dancer, I as well identified like you did um, in eighth grade, my career ended at 18, 19 when I went to college. And that transition, who am I without this? And you see this with athletes. I see this in my practice all the time. Um, an injury or maybe even an eating disorder puts someone out. And then the this sort of depression sets in because who are you without this? It's just such an interesting side of the coin to consider because, of course, that question is, well, how can we instill kind of a joy for movement in our kids? And I think you're bringing up this nuanced and really important other side of it. And I'm appreciating that for a parent. You know, I think I even asked my mom once, like, how come you didn't, you know, make me have an identity outside of this? And she was like, you loved it. You were good. You know, there was positive feedback. And so I I appreciate parents that are, you know, whether you're a dance mom or a parent that's coaching the Little League team, you get really invested. I mean, I think that our kids benefit so much from a parent that's supportive and there in the wings or on the stands. But what you're bringing up is it's it's a little it's a little point, but it's a really important one. There are a lot of reasons why we move. It's not just for achievement. You know, there's there's the social aspects of it. There's the challenging, you know, your fear. There's there's lots of, of different reasons why we move. And I think once we sometimes individuate or focus very much on one thing, we kind of forget the other aspects of it, right? It becomes more about did you, um, you know, strike out or, or did you pitch a really good game rather than, hey, I love my team. <laughs> I want to hang out with my team, you know? So um, I think just kind of keeping the, the view as broad as you can as a parent um, to the best of your ability that it's not just your success in what you're doing, um, but also, you know, there's so many other benefits. Well, I was going to ask you to chime in on this debate. I mean, I'm a parent of two young girls, um, five and six, and we're just emerging into the field. And I think it's actually less so an issue in New York City of getting super specialized in one sport very, very early. And I'm wondering if you can chime in on that debate. I mean, I've not been engaged in it myself, but I know it exists as to the value of playing soccer, for example, all year round as a six, seven, eight-year-old. Like, what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) So my thoughts are biased by my own experience in that I, when I was little, I, I rode horses, I went to swimming lessons. I grew up in a neighborhood where it was safe enough for my parents to basically say um, after lunch, go ride your bike with your friends. We don't want to see you till dinner. (laughs) You know, it was a very, very diverse, broad experience for me. Um, And I really didn't start to get serious about ballet um, until I was in my my preteen years. So I think that that built a sense of self and a sense of love for movement and a 
let's face it, cross training, right? I mean, you can't, if you do the same thing all the time, you're, you're more likely to get injured in, in those areas. Um, so from a pragmatic point of view, but also from a psychological point of view, I, I would advocate for keeping things a little less specialized. Um, I don't know. That's, that's something where I understand the debate. I think, you know, if a child is, is really, really focused, um, on something, then, um, if it comes from the sense of a passion for it, or that there's a sense of real, um, joy and focus towards a certain activity, um, I don't think parents should shut it down necessarily, but I think if it, if it's coming from an external, um, directive, like you must do this, um, I don't know. I I think it's probably airing more on the side of listening to the child and letting them decide what's fun, what they want to do. Yeah. And I mean, it's true. Some child, some children are very self-directed and if given the opportunity, uh, will really get focused on something. And, and like you said, you know, build mastery in that and experience themselves as capable and connected to whether it's a art or a sport. Um, hopefully there's a social component in there as well. And that exists all across the board. But I I suppose it's related to what you were saying and what we were saying before. If you do have one of those kids, or even if you are one of those parents that wants to explore that, like you're going to do soccer this year, can you do something else too? (laughs) You know, just even if it's not like the equivalent of um, an array of offerings, like just creating some space, some some downtime or some cross training, if, if we have to call it that, um, just for the the, the psychological well being, right? Of not not creating the risk of losing a kid, losing their identity into one thing, just feels a little sticky to me. It does. I think too. You know, if we're following the literature, perfectionism is actually on the rise, which is kind of it's interesting, and it, it says something. I'm not sure what, but I think the idea that it's okay to try new things and, and fail at them or not be so successful, um, that if you're always doing one thing and trying to get better and better and better at it, um, it doesn't allow you that sense of, um, you know, like a sense of humor <laughs> about, oh, well, I guess I, you know, honestly, I, I have to say full disclosure, I personally have zero hand-eye coordination. I cannot, I cannot play Frisbee to save my life. <laughs> I, I am, I like do not ever ask me to play doubles tennis. I cannot. And I I think it's pretty funny that I am so coordinated. I spent my whole life being a, you know, a very, um, you know, specific athlete. And I, there are certain ways where I, I would never engage in certain activities, but I tried them and I failed and I laughed and I, you know, it's, I think there's, um, there's a lot of value to that. Well, yeah, I think it speaks to that need of the resilience, you know, Mm -hmm. and that it's just, there's so much literature coming out about that, which is how valuable building resilience is. And it kind of, you have to, you can only build that through trial and error, trial and, error yeah. and failure and relating to failure in a certain way. If we don't allow ourselves to do that, we lose out on the experience of building resilience, which is hugely important for our uh, well-being and all holistic well-being. Mm-hmm. Um So anyway, (laughs) let's talk about what a parent listening could do. One thing um, that they could take away from this conversation, from your body of work um, and your expertise, 
What is the one thing that you would recommend they do to help their children love and engage in movement, but be protected from body dissatisfaction, unhealthy exercise practices, and eating disorders? Ooh, that's a tall order. I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to give you one thing, but it's going to have a couple different parts. We'll take it. All right. So the one thing I would say is uh, kind of circling back to something I've said already, which is just to model best practices. Um, and what do I mean by that? It's, it's framing movement based on things other than appearance. So it would be emphasizing strength, socializing, power, overall health, you know, anything related to being more joyful or, you know, experiencing the movement in a way that just shifts the focus from trying to look different than you do, whether that's through your own actions or through your verbalization about it. Um, so, you know, either straight up modeling behavior or, or modeling the way you talk about it or think about it. Um, it's hard to do sometimes, but I think um, it sets the context that will allow a child to naturally explore things in a way where they don't judge themselves and um, they seek motivation for a movement that's actually more healthful. And I think part of that is to, you know, getting back to our conversation about how to support your child um, if they are more focused on a certain sport or, or an achievement. I like the image of, you know, it comes directly from the family-based treatment um, context of swimming alongside your child, kind of reacting, you know, in a sensitive way to when they need more support or less support, sort of following their lead, obviously with your parental expert guidance and knowing, you know, from a, from a larger, more aged perspective what, what might be helpful. But um, I felt very supported. My parents when I was 11 and said, I'm sorry, I, I, I no longer want to go downhill skiing because I, I might hurt myself and it's, it's going to ruin my career, that they didn't just roll their eyes and laugh at me. They said, okay, like, you know, if, if, you, if you really don't want to go skiing, that's okay. We'll, we'll find other things that we can do that, that are just as fun. And they were super supportive of everything that I, that I did. You know, even though I was one of those kids that individuated pretty early, they didn't, they didn't shut it down. They let me, let me sort of carve my path. So yeah, like I said, I didn't give you one answer, did I? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I'm sure that people can, you know, parents can take that and and take one of those things or all of those things and run yeah. run with it. <laughs> run, right, right, run with it. And it was a it was a very I think it was an even harder question that we asked Sasha than usual because we asked you one thing to protect from body dissatisfaction, unhealthy exercise practices, and eating disorders. As though, right. as though there isn't even is one thing. But I, I thought your answer was beautiful, and this conversation has been just wonderful, and uh, we're just so pleased that you joined us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. So I wanted to touch on for some of the parents that are having trouble finding, helping their kids find movement that they love, like getting moving at all, you know, and just, just kind of together having a think about how to speak to those parents, you know, what's going on um, and how can we help them help their kids enjoy some, some type of movement? Like, mm -hmm. is it because 
of kind of what you were talking about, perfectionism is on the rise. Is it because, could it perhaps be because it's too intimidating to, Mm -hmm. if you move, you have to do it, you have to be good at it or something like that. And is that coming, where is that coming from? Is it coming from gym class? Is it Mm -hmm. coming from, like, what is it coming from? I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, Sasha. Yeah, I think the, there's a lot of social pressure, you know, even I remember way back in the day when you were playing, um, you know, back when physical education was still funded in public schools, um, we, we would play these games where, you know, you'd have to, you know, not necessarily perform in front of your classmates, but you'd have to do something. Um, and, and if you didn't do so well, people would laugh at you, you know, and it's, it's something that I think if you don't have, you know, athletic ability or you don't have, any semblance of athleticism, if, if you're, you know, not, not the most coordinated, um, it can be really hard to put yourself out there. And I think, um, whether it's the fear of failure, the fear of ridicule, you know, for parents, I think to support just trying, it's okay. Like that it's, it's something that even if you don't succeed or do well at something, um, that there's a, a lesson to be learned in trying and, um, for even parents to demonstrate, doing something and maybe not doing so well at it and having, having a sense of, you know, non-judgment or, or laughter or, a, you know, I think it, it comes down to letting the child know it's okay um, to not do something and, and do it really well. I, I'm glad we, we, we brought this up um, because I'm thinking too that in some cases weight stigma is probably could be playing a role, right? Like, and you know, for kids in larger bodies, they just, they do face a lot of challenges, um, not because they're in larger bodies, right? But because our culture has just not, they just haven't accepted size inclusivity and size diversity. It's it's getting better, but it's not there yet. And so I'm, I just want to appreciate that, you know, that, that doesn't mean that a kid that's in a smaller body might also be reluctant to get involved or is cautious of doing things like that they don't want to feel silly or they don't want to do something that they don't feel competent at. I totally don't want to generalize, but I do think that especially for kids in larger bodies who are, who like, who could be hearing at the doctor's office, oh, well, just like less, fewer snacks and, you know, move more, which is so stigmatizing. And I I want to just connect to something that um, Annalisa Arroyo brought up on our communication episode about there was a good finding in her research that if you can be physical with your child, not like allowing them to don't, not just about having them kind of see you be physical, but really be physical with them. And we were talking a lot about like going ice skating or going hockey, you know, going hiking, or like you even said, like, oh, it's a beautiful day. Let's go walking. Um, that that can be very uh, impactful, both in terms of predicting improved, I think she was talking about body, yeah. body image, right? Yeah. Um, but that feels connected here that even if it's just, um, validating that experience in a non-judgmental way and then, and then just still really trying to kind of do it as a family. And, um, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of note that that could be a, a, a percentage of, of kids that might be struggling with movement, kids that are facing that stigma. What that does too, is it ties in the idea that there's other reasons why we move. It's to spend family time together, right? Like let's do something together, whether it's just turning on the music and having a dance party in the living room. It doesn't have to be an organized activity or something where the child feels that it's punitive, like go out, you need to move. No, let's go out and have fun together. Like whatever it is, let's throw a ball around in the backyard, you know? Um, I love the dance party. That's like, that's, that's how we, that's 
that's the only way we get physical, but it's super <laughs> yeah, fun. It is. Who doesn't fun. love to do that? And oh, in yeah. any, in any body who doesn't love to move to music. So that's it's, right. uh, right. It's true. And you know, and, and not a, not a gym class in which you're learning ballroom dancing. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's pretty embarrassing (laughs) for most kids. Yeah, I mean, I'm reflecting on I was at like our, you know, introduction to school basically because my my daughter's in kindergarten. But back, you know, in in the fall, the gym teacher, the physical education teacher got up on the stage and was talking and saying, you know, statistically girls stop moving um, around fifth grade. Um, I don't know if I don't know if you've seen that statistic or not, but that I, I haven't actually seen it, but I heard it from him. Um, and and just it struck me like of, mm-hmm. of listening to that and of course our work, you know, thinking about it and thinking about what's what what what's going on there, yeah. being curious and you know, how do we instead of being like, Oh my gosh, you have to move, how do we actually like sit with with our kids and notice Notice what's fun for them because moving is so natural. It really to do, is, but it's it can be it can be categorized as such a not fun thing for kids. Well, and and it can also that's on one side, and then the virtue can get mixed up in it. You know, if someone that's very athletic, oh, that's the golden child, right? Like the golden child is always like some quarterback. You know, it's like not all kids want to move, but I think what is important to perhaps most important is less is your child moving are they not moving but why because a child that's like listen I want to play chess like I don't want to do that you know okay so that's maybe a little bit different from I'm afraid or I'm uncomfortable I just wonder if it's more about what's going on there right um and not making assumptions about why Right. It's getting a little bit more nuanced with the motivation for why they're moving or why they're not moving. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think that's our show. That's our show. (laughs) I'm guessing you all have thoughts on movement and exercise. So if you have reactions or questions that come up during this episode, send us an email at info at full bloom project or a comment on our Instagram. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would greatly appreciate you leaving us a review or rating on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. Thank you all for listening. And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.